Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. Not surprisingly, we're going to turn to Washington, D.C. this week, but that's not the only place we're looking. Our podcast today starts with a President Trump who really doesn't want to accept that his rival, former vice president and now president-elect Joe Biden, has won the election. So the first thing we're going to tell you in this podcast today is that come January, we will have a President Biden. Once that happens, certain things in the world will become simpler. Other issues will become more complicated. Joining us from the U.S. Capitol is Jonathan Wood, a director in the firm and our lead U.S. analyst. Jonathan, welcome. Hey, Chuck. Glad to be here. Tomas Favaro joins us from Sao Paulo, where he's also a director and leads our coverage of the Southern Cone. Hey, Tomas. Hey, Chuck, Jonathan. Thank you very much for the invitation. And Zandra Kellert is our lead U.K. and Europe analyst and is dialing in from London. Zandra, welcome back. Hi, Chuck. Good to be here. Guys, let's go straight into global trade. What will a Biden administration do, number one, for North-South trade, including with Mexico within the USMCA, but then what's going to happen with Brexit? And while we're on things that start with B, we can talk about Brazil and maybe even move on to a little bit of Argentina. Jonathan, do you want to just kick us off with which way do you think the president is going to look after inauguration when it comes to trade? The first thing to understand is that trade is not the first priority of the Biden administration. The first priority of the Biden administration is the COVID-19 pandemic and the U.S. economic recovery. And both Biden and the Democrats have signaled that trade is going to take a back seat to those immediate urgent priorities. But, you know, beyond that, I think it's fair to say that we can anticipate a more predictable less transactional and more multilateral U.S. trade policy, certainly one that seeks to dial down some of the, let's say, thorny trade disputes that emerged during the Trump era, notably with key U.S. allies like Europe, Japan, South Korea, India, one that the U.S. is actively cultivating as an ally. And I think the same thing goes for the Western Hemisphere region as well, bearing in mind that you know Biden will come into office some months after the USMCA, the NAFTA retread, has been in effect. And so if you like, regional trade relations, certainly in North America, are somewhat baked in and not something that the new administration will really have to worry about. Jonathan, are we going with calling four years of the Trump administration the Trump era? You know, the key question, I mean, not to get too far away from the trade issue, but the key question is going to be, you know, how much continuity will there be in Biden's foreign policy with what we saw under the Trump administration? And I think speaking of it as an era, there will certainly be some significant changes in direction. But trade is perhaps one of those areas where we might not see so much substantive difference. I mean, when you think about the general skepticism, if not hostility towards free trade and trade liberalization, that is something that originated with the Democratic Party, which is of great concern to the trade unions and progressives that are part of Biden's coalition. You know, we're recording this podcast just days after China 
engineered the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which was, you know, really where the Trump administration began its administration in the very first days withdrawing the U.S. from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So, you know, that was a position that many Democrats at that time, including the Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton, shared. And so on the trade front, you know, they're not going to call it America first, but there is going to be a focus on U.S. interests and in particular on those parts of the trade portfolio that are good for U.S. workers and U.S. manufacturing. And I think it goes perhaps without saying that a Biden administration will be just as keen on bringing U.S. manufacturing back home as was the Trump administration. So, Sandra, you know, as we stayed up overnight watching the U.S. election returns and went through also that Wednesday when it looked like the results were going one way at the beginning of the day in another direction towards the end of the day, what was that feeling coming out of Downing Street when it began to dawn on them that the next president of the United States may not be as friendly to a Brexit trading nation as the outgoing president? Was it panic? I mean, was it relief? What's going to happen with the first B word? I don't think it was panic. I think even before election night, the UK government was starting to gear up for what a Biden win would mean for them. We were already at a point whereby it was clear that a US UK trade deal was not going to be done before the end of the year, which had originally been a kind of UK aim. So I think at that point, the UK government will have started to think, okay, what does this mean? And really starting to look in the longer term, while at the same time, they are kind of admired in these final stages of the UK EU trade talks, potentially, that could still all collapse in the coming weeks. At the moment, the the focus towards the US will very much be what will this mean kind of post-January 2021? I mean, I have to think they must have been panicking in Downing Street because knowing that trade really wasn't going to be a focus of the Biden administration, knowing that it was probably going to come into office with the same perspective as Obama, namely that Brexit was a terrible blunder and certainly that the U.S.'s economic and strategic equities were more with continental Europe. Not, not that Trump was necessarily friendly towards or fast-tracking a US-UK trade deal, was he? No, and I think that's the point. Six months to a year ago, yes, there would have been this angle that the UK really believed that potentially a UK-US trade deal could be kind of their get-out-of-jail-free card in that it would mean they could kind of turn around to the EU and say, look what we've got here. I think once it became clear that that wasn't going to happen with Trump before the end of his first term, then I think that did kind of cause them to think about whether actually there was a huge amount of difference between a Trump and a Biden presidency on the trade issue. Tomas, give us a perspective from South America. What's been happening in Brazil and what sort of expectations does Brasilia have for an economic relationship with the United States? I think you know, once Biden's foreign policy for Latin America is laid out, I think leaders across the region will just cherish a greater degree of predictability, right? I think it's also fair to say that Biden also knows Latin America certainly better than Trump did. He played a critical role in the Obama administration's policy towards the, the Western Hemisphere. That in itself is a positive change that many Latin America leaders are expecting. 
when it comes to specific policies, however, then you do see sort of a more mixed bag and nowhere there's more evident than in Brazil. While the Bolsonaro administration is certainly keen to continue working with the U.S., to engage in economic development and trade initiatives. It's also very reluctant and concerned about, you know, the degree to which the Biden presidency will reinforce commitment to climate change and expect the same from its trading partners, the fires in the Amazon and the rising deforestation in the Amazon. I think that's one area where we see a relationship with Brazil and the US probably coming a bit more contentious than it was over the past couple of years with you know, the increased likelihood that Biden will join forces with some of the European leaders who are already pressing Bolsonaro for a substantial change in environmental policy. So some of these concerns around environmental issues and climate change more broadly are adequately addressed. Tomas, can we do a quick detour into Argentina? I think Jonathan will agree, feel free to disagree if you don't, that Biden will be a much more multilateral presidency and, and the United States will take a much more multilateral view of the world. Argentina may in the very near future be looking for some multilateral assistance. Is Argentina in a better mood at a Biden presidency or not? Yes, Argentina definitely needs the U.S. support, you know, in its quest to restructure its existing debt. You know, it has done done it with success with private creditors, but now has to strike a deal with the IMF, right? But I think we shouldn't overemphasize the role of the U.S. in this. It's obviously very positive for the Argentine government to have eventually a U.S. backing during the negotiation with the IMF. But I think in this case in particular, the outcome is much more dependent on, you know, the Argentine economic team and their ability to put together a compelling offer to the IMF than, than anything else. Jonathan, will Europe finally see the end of somebody banging on their door and asking them how much money they've been paying for NATO? I think yes and no. I mean, that underlying question of burden sharing is something that was a big part of the Obama administration as well. And certainly where, you know, the, the difference now might might be more tonal than substantive, but but obviously the Biden administration will give full-throated support to NATO, to Five Eyes, to existing U.S. security alliances and partnerships worldwide, which it, you know, I think correctly perceives as the single best force multiplier for U.S. interests and strategy that Washington has, that push to take more responsibility for security issues. And, and I think, you know, in Europe, in the years that we've been looking at this, you've got everything from the, you know, migrant and, and refugee crisis, destabilization of North Africa and everything that's happening on the periphery between Russia and Europe. You know, I think the U.S. is still going to be interested in the Europeans taking a more significant, even leading role in those issues. Now, you know, in the Obama administration, he took a lot of flack for thinking of it as leading from behind. But that seems to be the mold that a Biden administration might also adopt with some of those regional security issues. Zandra, has the obituary already been written for the special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K.? And if so, what does that spell for defense cooperation? And if not, does that mean that the U.K. tries to sort of stick its head up first and higher than the EU when it comes to sort of being the, the first defense partner across the Atlantic? The UK-US special relationship is one that has been discussed at length as to to what extent it really does or, or doesn't exist. 
There was a huge amount of talk in the UK press immediately after the election, basically indicating that Biden would not be as in favour of this special relationship as potentially other previous presidents, particularly because of the, the tensions at the moment with Brexit and Ireland. However, there was then this sudden huge kind of shift in the British media when it turned out that Biden took Boris Johnson's call before that of other European leaders. So, I mean, there's an extent to which we ask, how much is this just something that's considered in the media rather than really being a kind of reflection of genuine policy? In terms of the UK and defence, it obviously has been a major partner of the US in recent years, and I don't see any reason why that should change significantly. But then there are these big questions about what is the future of of the kind of UK-European defence relationship? Obviously, NATO will remain the kind of key umbrella there. But is there potential for sort of more or less tension now that the UK has left the EU? And then within the EU, there are big tensions about what they do about defence. Do they kind of move towards much closer cooperation and even towards potentially a European army? Or will it remain very much a nation state issue, which I think at the moment is more likely to remain a much more kind of fragmented picture? One thing that's interesting here is that Biden personally, and and more than Obama, and this has certainly come up a lot in the US coverage of his foreign policy, is skeptical of the kind of interventionist and aggressive use of US military force. He famously argued against surging troops in Afghanistan in 2009, one of the first big foreign policy decisions that Obama had to make. And, you know, we're having this podcast as there's now rampant speculation that Trump plans to withdraw a significant component of U.S. forces in Afghanistan before he leaves office. I think that is something that Biden would probably sympathize with. He's maybe less keen to get involved in foreign conflicts and and certainly wants to spend these first few months of his administration focusing on domestic issues. So it seems like that portfolio, I mean, it will be managed by very experienced people in Washington, but may not necessarily be, well, barring any challenges or surprises that arise, may not necessarily be the most urgent priority of the new administration. So I'm watching CNN International and they show a piece of footage of the BBC coming up to Mr. Biden with a camera and a microphone in his face and saying, Mr. Biden, any comment for the BBC? And Joe Biden turns to the camera and says, BBC, I'm Irish. Sandra, what do you make of that? I did catch that. I believe that the actual footage was not current. It was from much earlier in the year. I think there certainly was a a concern about the extent to which the Johnson government's kind of dismissiveness of the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, certainly in how that's being played out via Brexit, was going to be more of an issue with a man who self-identifies with his Irish heritage in the White House. Michael Martin was one of the very first calls that Biden, the Prime Minister of Ireland, one of the very first calls that Biden made as putative president-elect as well. Something that's been talked about and written about quite a bit, but I want to hear what we have to say about this. And this is about the end of Trump, the end of Trumpism, question mark, and what this means for the wave of populism that we've been following and talking about, whether it's Boris Johnson or it's Bolsonaro or it's Marine Le Pen or it's Donald Trump, who runs out of gas and who doesn't. 
Well, I mean, one of the key takeaways from this U.S. election cycle is that Trump's brand of populism was extremely popular. I mean, he won more votes than he got in 2016 by considerable amount. Over 71 million people in the U.S. voted for a second term. And so even though the reaction to that was more significant as we head into the Biden administration, there's still quite a lot of support for that. And I think that reflects some of the underlying issues that drove President Trump's run in 2016 within the U.S. economy, in particular, the deindustrialization of parts of the U.S., concerns about exposure to trade competition, especially from China. Indeed, as well, the changing level of, of inequality here. These are challenges that have not gone away. And to some degree, the COVID-19 pandemic has probably made much worse. I suspect that Biden's administration, not, not only will he be dealing with this half of the country that still has that political persuasion, but he will also be dealing with this basic and, and very difficult economic recovery, which seems likely to maybe you know drive things a bit further down that road. From a European perspective, we can certainly say that this is certainly not the end of populism, although you know there are certainly ways in which Trump has driven some of those elements within Europe, but a lot of the, the populist movements in Europe well predate the election of Trump. And if we look at France, we Chuck, you mentioned Marine Le Pen, you know, she well predates Trump in, in political terms and is likely to perform well at the next French elections in 2022, unless something remarkable changes in France between then and now, such as the emergence of a kind of new political movement. Then we have Italy, where although the League, which has been leading the polls over the past year or so, has seen its its polling falling, you then have this even more right-wing party, the Brothers of Italy, sort of making up that ground. So that there's certainly no feeling that it's the centre that's, that's sort of taking back the space there. And then if we look at the UK, while Brexit is gradually limping off the scene, we still have Nigel Farage trying to sort of exploit the pandemic and try to, to really reignite populism almost in the UK. He announced recently that he will be renaming the Brexit Party Reform UK with the main plan of protesting against COVID-19 restrictions. So I think there are lots of moving pieces in a European perspective. Having said that, I did see an interesting counterfactual the other day, which said that if David Cameron had waited until 2017 to hold the Brexit referendum, so that it had happened after Trump's victory, would the UK still have voted for Brexit? And I, I do think that is an interesting question, obviously, that we'll never know the answer to. I think, essentially, you can't completely separate what's happened in the US from what's happening in Europe, but there are also lots of other issues that make it a separate story. Sandra, totally off topic, but just in two sentences, how much trouble is Emmanuel Macron in? Well, interestingly, his polling has actually seen something of a resurgence in recent times, particularly potentially because of this harder line he's taken on Islamist extremism. So in a way, he's not necessarily in as much trouble if he moves into Marine Le Pen's territory there. Thank you for that. Let's go back down south. Tomas Jair Bolsonaro, what does the future look like for him? 
Just adding to Zander's point, because I think she may touch on a crucial aspect here, is that Trump did not begin the populist wave in the sense that we can trace back some of the, you know, sort of origins of that far right movement, for example, in Europe, and see so many similarities with, you know, Trumpism. And even elsewhere, you know, if you take more broadly, think of Rodrigo Duterte, who took office in the Philippines before Trump. But obviously, you know, once you're sitting on top of the largest economy in the planet, you have, you know, a whole whole different degree of influence in terms of amplifying it and maximizing it. So I think the fact that he's being able to cement a populist movement, again, in the US, the largest economy in the planet, has been able to receive a record number of votes, even though he was not conducted to a second term. That sets a precedent. And I think all other countries are watching what's happening in the US. And he will continue to play a leading role, not only in the US, as Jonathan pointed out, but even outside the US. I think probably the best case of that is Jair Bolsonaro. You know, as of today, he and his governments have yet to recognize or congratulate Biden for his victory. So very much siding with Trump's pledges to wait for the final count and for all the judicial proceedings that he and his partners in the Republican Party are undertaking before a final verdict is achieved. And I think that speaks to, again, the strength of Trumpism and its ability to outlive even this specific and latest electoral defeat. Fantastic. I think we've run out of time. Let me just once again thank all of our panelists for joining in today. Zandra, thanks very much for the comments on Europe. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, Tomas, always a pleasure hearing you from Sao Paulo. Say hi to everybody down there for me. Thank you. Jonathan, as ever, thanks very much for dialing in from DC. Always my pleasure. Cheers. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you, and goodbye for now. Thank you.